We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we're doing our Politics Friday class or episode. And uh, how cold is it there, Bob? Well, I was going to bring that up if you failed to. So, you know, I'm here in the warehouse district of Gypsum, Colorado, and uh, it was a balmy minus 13 this morning when I drove in. That's so, too cold. That's too cold. I don't think so I ever had it. I don't think it was ever that cold. I remember minus eight or something, but when I lived there, but we're at 23. And, and that's a, what I was going to ask. Yeah. I play golf. So you're 30, I play golf in my 36 shorts. 36 degrees warmer than Yeah. I play Monday. golf, golf in, in shorts and short sleeves on Monday, Tuesday. And now it's 23. So <clears throat> next oh week, goodness. it'll probably be back to 60 and I can go, go out again. <laughs> I won't be going out anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. So, so what, got are we, some st- what are we reading? Yeah, we've got some stuff to get to. You know, Last time I introduced Thomas Sowell, uh, his book, Economic Facts and Fallacies. That's important for us. Here's why. If you read Ephesians 1.10, Paul is describing the uh, administration of the fullness of the times. And the word translated administration is the Greek word that we get our word economy from. Right. So the the etymology of the English word economy goes back to Greek and it's two words, oikos, that's the econ. So oikos in Greek means house and then namas, oikos namas, that means house law. Namas mm-hmm. means law. So <clears throat> that, that word, you know, comes into our usage today as economy. But you can, you can see the, the roots of that, right? How a household is run. And, right, you right. know, household, household could be your personal household. But, you know, David's kingdom can be described as a household. So, so a nation could be described as a house, household in that sense. So economy, right? How, mm-hmm. how things are run. So remember, the greatest administrator in the kingdom of Israel ever was Solomon. Right. David was the warrior, you know, the 
pacified everything and um, I mean, set the whole thing up. But Solomon, oh my goodness. So, <laughs> and you remember the comment about how well Solomon's kingdom was run, that uh, the result of all that was that silver in Solomon's day had no value because <clears throat> everyone had so much gold. Right. <clears throat> and you remember the Queen of Sheba saying, you know, man, I, the half of the, your brilliance wasn't told to me uh, once she had noticed his administration. So it's not so much that God opened the vaults of heaven and rained down literally gold coins on Israel. The, what happened was when you run things according to the natural law, when the administration is in full swing, everything oiled up, all the gears meshed, it produces wealth. And that's why we've said earlier, any nation's greatest resource really is their people. Mm -hmm. So how you handle the people really determines the wealth of a nation. It's actually not how much natural resources you have. It sounds strange at first, but it's not. Wealth can be created by people. That's going to be an important point. We're going to read a couple pages from uh, Thomas Sowell here, but I'm just setting all that up. <clears throat> so the way to... Well, I want to interject. Uh, I think it's Rodney Stark, professor, historian at Baylor, wrote a book, How the West Won, or I think it was. Um, not to be confused with Louis L'Amour's How the West Was Won. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and I think in there, he's basically showing that, like you say, it's the people, but it's the people's religion. That is why, mm -hmm. why Western civilization uh, dominated was because yep. of, of the principles in Christianity as opposed to the principles in Islam or Buddhism. Sure. I, I have no doubt. I have no doubt of that. None. So it's they, not just it's the people and it's what do the people believe? It's what they believe, but it's also treating them according, like administering them according to like design. Mm -hmm. according to how a human being was designed. So as the image of God, one attendant circumstance of that is freedom. Mankind was not made to be enslaved. So when your economic system reflects freedom for the person, freedom for the human being, it thrives. Yeah. But those those things go hand in hand, right? And that's what you're noticing in our country is our freedoms are being taken away. And it's almost like the old illustration of the frog in the boiling pot, right? Mm -hmm. as, as the temperature slowly increases, it doesn't even notice. But our freedoms are being taken away one by one. And you're starting to hear voices pop up about that. But I don't know if they're going to be strong enough voices to turn the tide back. So anyway, <clears throat> let's listen to Thomas Sowell, and his book is Economic Facts and Fallacies. What we're trying to do with this, I'm just going to read a couple pages, then we'll get on to our founding fathers stuff. But <clears throat> if you read a couple pages of this at a time, what happens is your insight 
sharpens. Your wisdom grows. So these are tools by which to observe the policies, politics, and economics in our immediate surroundings here in the West. So let me start reading. This is the zero-sum fallacy. Many individual fallacies and economics are founded on the larger and usually implicit fallacious assumption that economic transactions are a zero-sum process in which what is gained by someone is lost by someone else. Right. Okay, that's a fallacy. They aren't zero-sum, but that's often how policies are passed. Well, Ed, I that, think it, it's, it is a zero-sum game in a socialist setting. Well, there you go. Well, okay, there you because go. the guy who works, they take half his money and give it to the guy who doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And So you're right. But in capitalism, yes, it, it doesn't work that way. Okay, so let's read on, because he's going to explain that. Okay. But voluntary economic transactions, whether between employer and employee, tenant and landlord, or international trade, would not continue to take place unless both parties were better off making these transactions than not making them. Obvious as this may seem, its implications are not always obvious to those who advocate policies to help one party to these transactions. So let's read a little further because the, you got to hit this one out of the park. You can't just agree with it. You got to understand why he's exactly right on this. So his next paragraph, let us start at square one. <laughs> Isn't that what better place to start? Right. I always get asked that. Don't you like a new Christian? You know, well, where should I start reading it in the Bible? Square one. Why don't you start on page one? Genesis one one. Why? Why would you start anywhere else anyway? Why do economic transactions take place at all? And what determines the terms of those transactions? The potential for mutual benefit is necessary, but not sufficient, unless the transaction's terms are in fact mutually acceptable. Let's pause there for a second. Did you recognize that phrase from our core beliefs? Necessary, but not sufficient. Remember mm -hmm. when we were yeah. talking about the resurrection? Okay, that, that's important to have that kind of thinking ironed out in your mind, what those terms imply and so on. His point here is, if it's a voluntary transaction, both parties need to be interested. Both parties are going to gain, right? So mm -hmm. he's going to explain that. Each side may, of course, prefer terms that are especially favorable to themselves, but they'll accept other terms rather than lose the benefits of making the transaction altogether. There may be many terms acceptable to one side or the other, but the only way transactions can take place is if these sets of terms are acceptable to each side, they overlap, right? What's acceptable to one guy 
also will be acceptable to the other guy. They overlap. Now, some of them, some of what you would want isn't going to be agreeable to the other guy. So that part doesn't overlap. So just imagine two circles and say 20% of them overlap. Right. And in that 20% shaded area, that's where the transaction takes place. That's economics 101. Okay. But suppose that a government policy is imposed in the interest of helping <clears throat> one side, say employees or tenants. Such a policy means that there are now three different parties involved in these transactions and only those particular terms which are simultaneously acceptable to all three parties are legally permitted. So let's pause and paint the picture. Now, instead of having two circles where 20% overlap, now you got three circles and maybe 10% overlaps or right. 7%, right? Mm -hmm. Much harder to get a deal done now, right. much harder. So in other words, these new terms preclude some terms that would otherwise be mutually acceptable to the parties themselves. With fewer terms now available for making transactions, fewer transactions are likely to be made. Since these transactions are mutually beneficial, this usually means that both parties are now worse off in some respect. This general principle has many concrete examples in the real world. So let me just touch on one of them. Then, then we'll pause and go on to our founding fathers. Okay. Rent control, <laughs> for example, has been imposed in various cities around the world with the intention of helping tenants. Almost invariably, landlords and builders of housing find the reduced range of terms less acceptable and therefore supply less housing. In Egypt, for example, rent control was imposed in 1960. An Egyptian woman who lived through that era and wrote about it in 2006 wrote the following. The end result was that people stopped investing in apartment buildings and a huge shortage in rentals and housing forced many Egyptians to live in horrible conditions with several families sharing one small apartment. The effects of the harsh rent control is still felt today in Egypt. Mistakes like that can last for generations. So he goes on to explain in great detail what happens when you impose rent control. Mm -hmm. there, there's no more... Uh, or the motive for the housing providers is greatly reduced. So they're not going to throw their resources into fixing the plumbing, making sure you have heating because they're not making the money they used to make. So right. they are right. not motivated, right. To keep it up. And. <clears throat> or to even bother building it. Or to even bother building it in the first place. And what happens is it, it literally ruins the whole housing situation when you do that. So all that is built on the implicit assumption that economics is a zero-sum game. 
that the the landlords are stealing in a sense from the renters whatever they gain the renters have lost and that that's not the case at all people will willingly pay money for housing mm-hmm. right so when you artificially impose barriers on that transaction it ruins the whole thing so that's economic fallacy number one but we'll talk about those a little bit each time yeah that's good so okay i'm excited about this one last time was really exciting with uh, alexander hamilton mm-hmm. okay today we had john jay you've heard of the Federalist Papers, I'll bet. Oh, yeah. And it really formed the philosophical basis of our system of government. Obviously, um, their own thoughts in the Federalist Papers coming from other classical sources and um, some contemporary thinkers and so on, like uh, Adam Smith and so on. But the Federalist Papers were hugely important to this country. And they were primarily written by three guys, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay. So let's read a little bit about John Jay. And most of this will be about his life and the person that he was. So Norman Cousins calls John Jay the father of American conservatism. So let's see if we had a good dad. Let's see if we had a good dad. Richard Hildreth believed that Jay was one of the three granite pillars of America's political greatness. The three, which also included Washington and Hamilton, constituted a trio not to be matched. In fact, not to be approached in our history, if indeed in any other. John Jay's son, William Jay, described him as a rare but interesting picture of the Christian patriot and statesman. At age 29, John Jay was the youngest delegate to the 1774 Continental Congress. Because he possessed both sound judgment and wisdom, He was selected to prepare a draft of the United States Address, which asked Great Britain for redress of grievances. Jay supported the War of Independence, although his conservative nature hoped for a reconciliation with England until about 1778. He served as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of New York during the war. While in that position, He fulfilled various mission assignments for the United States. After helping to complete the peace treaty with England, which ended the war, Congress made him Secretary of Foreign Affairs. Jay did not attend the Constitutional Convention, but strongly supported ratification. Jay, along with Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, wrote the Federalist Papers which explained the principles of the Constitution and were instrumental in securing the ratification of the Constitution. The papers are regarded as the best exposition of the principles of the Constitution ever written. Jay's abilities as a statesman 
led President Washington to appoint him the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Let me pause there. That's a good trivia question. Yeah. Right? Who yeah. was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court? It was John Jay. As Chief Justice, Jay strengthened the power of the federal courts by upholding the right of a citizen of one state to sue another state government in the Supreme Court. He strengthened the sovereignty of the United States in international affairs by holding that federal courts could rule in favor of the Swedish and American owners of a ship which the French government claimed to have lawfully captured. He also negotiated Jay's Treaty in 1794, which averted war with England by obtaining their agreement to evacuate outposts in Western America, compensate Americans for spoil in the amount of more than 10 million. Back then, that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And continue uninterrupted commerce with America. From 1795, to 1801, Jay was governor of New York. He was recognized for his honesty, his refusal to appoint or dismiss officials because of political affiliation, and his devotion to his duties. The reforms Jay sought included the revision of criminal law to eliminate the death penalty for everything but major crimes, humane treatment of prisoners, abolition of slavery, and an act to prevent the profanation of the Sabbath. Jay retired from public life in 1801 at the age of 57, but later served several terms as president of the American Bible Society. He died May 17th, 1829, at the age of 84. Jay's ancestors were French Huguenots. <clears throat> In other words, like Calvinists, right. Calvinist Protestants, <clears throat> who led France because, who left, fled France because of religious persecution. John Jay wrote an unfinished account of his ancestors, which is quoted by his son. Here's the quote. Thus, by divine providence, every member of the family was rescued from the rage and reach of persecution and enabled to persevere, preserve a portion of prosperity more than adequate to their actual necessities. All right. So he was, so he was the Supreme Court justice, but he didn't like serve until he died like we do these days. <laughs> uh, correct. Yeah, good observation. Retired because because he, right, he was governor. Guys, he was governor of New York after he was Supreme Court justice, and then he was yeah American Bible, Bible Society, Society after that. Mm -hmm. Correct. That's because I mean fundamentally these guys looked at it as service. Mm -hmm. Today they look at it as power. Right. Right. So you know he didn't look at his um, abdication of the Supreme court job as lessening his power. <laughs> he looked at it as sort of a change of service. Now he's going to go serve the state of New York or the Bible society today. When those guys say, you know, Oh, I served in the Senate. <laughs> That's just lip service, right? They're there for power, but that's my cynical side. Yeah. Only, only borne out by the facts. 
but <laughs> let's, let's move on. So John Jay was born in New York City, December 12th, 1745, the eighth of 10 children. When he was a small child, smallpox epidemic, I'll come back to that in a second, swept through New York City. A brother and sister were blinded by it. So the family moved to a better environment in the countryside. Oh, boy. Um, but that was a real pandemic. Right. Okay. Just what we have going on now is fake in order to get you vaccinated. But I read on. <laughs> William J., so his son, says of his father's home life, seldom have parents been so loved and reverenced as they were by him. Both father and mother were actuated by sincere and fervent piety. Both had warm hearts and cheerful tempers, and both possessed under varied and severe trials a remarkable degree of equanimity. But in other respects, they differed widely. He possessed strong masculine sense, was a shrewd observer, an admirable judge of men resolute, persevering, and prudent, and affectionate father, a kind master, but governing all under his control with absolute sway. She had a cultivated mind and fine imagination, mild and affectionate in her temper and manners. She took delight in the duties as well as the pleasures of domestic life. While a cheerful resignation to the will of providence during <clears throat> while a cheerful resignation to the will of providence during many years of sickness and suffering bore witness to the strength of her religious faith. So happily did these various dispositions harmonize together that the subject of this memoir often declared that he had never in a single instance heard either of his parents use towards the other an angry or unkind word. There's another passage we'll get to in a minute. A guy describes having dinner at the J house. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, these are my words. We'll get to it in a second, but like being in heaven. It's interesting. interesting. We'll get to that. <clears throat> John's mother taught him the basics of English and Latin. When he was between six and seven years old, his father wrote of him, Johnny is of very grave disposition and takes to learning exceedingly well. He will soon be fit for grammar school. And at age eight, John was sent to grammar school at nearby New Rochelle, New York, where he was taught by Reverend Mr. Stoop, pastor of the combined Episcopal and French church. New Rochelle was made up almost entirely of French Huguenots, and John learned their ways and became fluent in French. John enrolled in King's College at age 14. Okay, let's pause. So remember Hamilton went Yeah, there. yeah. Okay, and I, was, I said I was going to look up what school that is today. That's Columbia University in New York City today. But it, it was originally King's College. Well, there, there so, is a King's College in New York, isn't there? But it's a different, it's a different. I'm, I'm not sure. 
Yeah, I'd say this that one went on to be Columbia. I know Kara, Kara was interested in going there, so that's why. I'm... <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> so a basic entrance requirement at the college was, we've seen some of this before, right? To give a rational account of the Latin and Greek grammars, <laughs> read the first three of Tully's select orations in the first three books of the Aeneid, and translate the first 10 chapters of St. John's Gospel from Greek into Latin. Oh, my that goodness. Oh, my goodness. To enter the school. He did that at 14. Hamilton was the same. Yeah. So the school, remember, the, he went there because he wanted to go to that other school, and he requested that he not be held back like, I need mm -hmm. to do it as fast as possible. They wouldn't let him. Right. <laughs> so, he, so we went to this school. So the school followed a rigorous regimen and enforced strict rules against drunkenness, fornication, lying, theft, swearing, cursing. Can you believe that was a college? Yeah, I mean, can you believe colleges today? Right. Compared to laws against that stuff. So any other scandalous immorality including cockfighting, card playing. Oh, you couldn't even play cards. <laughs> Dice and other stuff. The card card His studies. I think my grandparents thought that cards were the devil's Bible or something like that. <clears throat> oh my. They could play Rook, but they couldn't so, they wouldn't play cards with um, a regular deck. It had to be something like a Rook, you know, a special whatever. Oh, did they like perceive sort of occult stuff behind the images on the cards I, or something? I like don't, that? I don't know. But okay. <clears throat> I think they actually got over okay, it in their so, later days. All right. Eidsmo um, continues. His studies included Greek, Latin, rhetoric, and the works of such writers as Grotius, Ocean. Seneca, Aristotle, Livy, Isocrates, Plutarch, Cicero, and Locke. He was one of the two students selected to give the salutatory, salutatory addresses on graduation day. John pursued a law career, and from 1764 to 1768, studied in the law offices of Benjamin Kissam of New York. He was then admitted to the bar. His law practice was successful and led into an equally successful career as a politician and statesman. Throughout both professions, Jay remained committed to the Christian principles he learned during childhood. Jay always seemed conscious of God's sovereign hand at work in human affairs and in his own life. He repeatedly referred to the beneficent care of heaven in delivering his family from religious persecution in France. He saw God's hand at work in the conflicts between the United States and Great Britain. His address at the New York Convention, which called for the support of the Declaration of Independence, was filled with references to biblical figures such as Nebuchadnezzar, Jacob, and Esau. He compared America to Israel stated that God would not bless America's cause unless it was true to him. Huh. 
his last will and testament. I'm, I'm obviously skipping some pages. I'm hitting the highlights mm-hmm. to uh, exp- that clarify Jay's faith. His last will and testament recounted the hand of God in his life. So this is a quote from, from Jay's last will and testament. Unto him who is the author and giver of all good, I render sincere and humble thanks for his merciful and unmerited blessings, and especially for our redemption and salvation by his beloved son. He's been pleased to bless me with excellent parents, with a virtuous wife, and with worthy children. His protection has accompanied me through many eventful years, faithfully employed in the service of my country. And his providence has not only conducted me to this tranquil situation, but also given me abundant reason to be contented and thankful. Blessed be his holy name. While my children lament my departure, let them recollect that in doing them good, I was only the agent of their heavenly father and that he never withdraws his care and consolations from those who diligently seek him. Huh. So here's another guy who comments on Jay's life. Norman Cousins says Jay accepted the literal truth of the Bible. Now, Hampton, when we covered I love saying the plural now, our core beliefs. Didn't we first begin with, we thought the Bible was the word of God. Mm -hmm. That's John Jay. Right. He accepted the literal truth of the Bible. Jay believed the Bible. This is another guy commenting on Jay. He knew every word of it to be completely and literally true. His immense faith buoyed him up in every misfortune. His quiet, piety and radiant serenity impressed themselves upon all his children. When Peter Augustus, his eldest son, died in 1843, he likewise admonished his children in these last words. My children, read the Bible and believe it. (laughs) So not only did Jay believe the Bible, but he imparted that to his children. Right. such, Such that they imparted it to their children. In his address to the American Bible Society in 1822, he spoke of the, quote, original and subsequent fallen state of man, his promised redemption from the latter, and the institution of sacrifices having reference to it. Um, Haven't we mentioned that about the founding fathers, just their core belief about mankind not, not only being the image of God, but we're now f- in a fallen state. Mm-hmm. That's so critical. It's so critical, Hampton. And it's, it's the opposite of what Western culture believes today. Western culture believes mankind through science will save itself. And it's as wrong as could be. Yeah. So strong sense of our fallen nature. Um, I've also mentioned a couple times the significance of the French Revolution by way of contrast to the American Revolution. So here's some important thoughts about it. Remember, he can speak French. He was raised by the French Huguenot. 
society in New York. So when he visited France, uh, during my residence there, I do not recollect to have had more than two conversations with atheists about their tenets. It was at a large party of which were several of that description. They spoke freely and continuously and, excuse me, they spoke freely and contemptuously of religion. I took no part in the conversation. In the course of it, one of them asked me if I believed in Christ. I answered that I did, and I thanked God that I did. Nothing further passed between me and them, as any of them, or any of them on that subject. So he spoke his piece, but knew when to stay quiet, right? Didn't, didn't really want to participate in those conversations. John Jay lived the Christian faith. Monahan puts it simply, he excelled in good works. He helped to keep a number of children in schools in Westchester County. And although he was not wealthy, he frequently gave to people who were in need. Oh, here's, here's this uh, one I wanted to get to. Dr. A.H. Stevens spoke about a visit to the Jay's home in 1816. I recall the scene in the family parlor, the venerable patriarch and his children and the household within his gates, uniting in thanksgiving, confession, and prayer. Sir, it was more like heaven upon earth than anything I've ever witnessed or conceived. It was worth more than all the sermons I ever listened to. What an amazing comment. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's just fantastic. You know, the one thing stood out there, he was not wealthy. Right. How yeah. rare is that And amongst our politicians? I remember reading about John Quincy Adams. I guess he was the son, right, mm -hmm. of John Adams. And at the, you know, he he was president or had been president when his dad died and he wanted to buy the family estate, but he couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> was yeah. just, that is yeah. so different today. Yeah. And just since you're rabbit trailing me on my <laughs> cynicism before we finish out some stuff on Jay, <clears throat> if you ever see. Joe Biden at, at his house. You'll see that occasionally on the news. Mm -hmm. That's not his only house. That's the house they want you to see because it looks rather normal, you know, middle class. Mm -hmm. Biden's got five houses. If you live up in our valley, right, you know, there's certain sections to our valley. Like one of them we call up here, Arrowhead. Very very nice four or five million and up houses. Biden's got five of those. My they goodness. just they just don't want you to see that he has that. Now how how do you what's the salary? He's been a senator for his entire life. What's their salary? Hundred thou, hundred plus seventy five or two hundred something like that. Yeah, you're not buying those houses with that salary. No. <laughs> okay. So more, more on John Jay. Uh, Jay believed the Christian faith should affect 
people's view of politics and that pastors should speak out against that which is morally repugnant. That's, that's important. I mean, there's examples here. We're not going to read through them. But that, I think the Christian faith as practiced in the United States, this is a generalization because there are plenty of exceptions to this, but mostly they punt. They punt on this stuff. Well, the the rules of 501c3 nonprofit churches is that they're not supposed to talk politics or they violate their nonprofit status. And so they've effectively shut down the, the pastors from doing exactly what John Jay said we should do. Yeah. And I know they're great. Like I, I think John MacArthur is pretty good at speaking out. I obviously know some others. Yeah. But our voice should not be silenced that way. I'd, well, I'd I don't ask, know what. Didn't we cover this earlier? How many of the founding signers of the Constitution were actual pastors? Two thirds or. Oh, I don't remember. There was something like that, that, you know, it was the pastors preaching from the churches that got the revolution going. Yeah. Right. And they did eventually did away with slavery. Why? That is counter to who a human being is. Mm hmm. Right. There's freedom for the image of God. It, it, you didn't have to do all these social justice sort of things. You just had to believe the Bible and it did away with that stuff. But anyway, here's uh, further. <clears throat> I wanted to point this out specifically. Then he spoke of moral or natural law which was given by the sovereign of the universe to all mankind, being founded by infinite wisdom and goodness on essential right, which never varies. It can require no amendment or alteration. Hmm. That's a pretty heartfelt conviction about God's natural law. Mm -hmm. um, Jay explained that the Lex Talionis that in, in street talk, right, that's eye for an eye. Right. He explained that the lex talionis or law of like punishment gives civil rulers the authority to punish criminals, but it does not give private citizens the right to take vengeance on their enemies. Hmm. Just some principles from Jay. Jay saw the establishment of civil government as necessary for the imposition of punishment on wrongdoers and the waging of just war. He believed natural law and natural rights were closely related and included the right to own property and enter into contracts. All these were part of the law of God. By identifying such relationships, it's evident that John Jay's Christian faith governed both his public and private life. Let's conclude with one last paragraph on Jay. <clears throat> Obviously, we're just summarizing the Titanic lives, really. The, the size and impact of these guys on history mm -hmm. is boy, almost immeasurable. So to read just 20 minutes or so about them is almost... You know, you feel guilty about it, but 
it shows you the, the main point we're trying to make is how how the Christianity formed the foundation of this country and how far we've fallen from that. Anyway, <clears throat> last paragraph about Jay. Jay believed in religious liberty like the other founding fathers. He recognized that state control of the church tended to suppress church growth and church strength. And that since the rights of man and the just limits of authority in church and state have been more generally and clearly understood, the church has been less disturbed by that zeal, which is not according to knowledge. And liberal sentiments and tolerant principles are constantly enlarging the sphere of their influence. That's kind of interesting. Um, his support for religious liberty and his political creed were based on the will of God, the author and guarantor of all human rights. We got to come back to that. In 1826, at the age of 80, he told the committee of the corporation of the city of New York, the most effectual means of securing the continuance of our civil and religious liberties is always to remember with reverence and gratitude the source from which they flow. <laughs> so they thought if you severed humanity from the creator of humanity, all of this would crash. Right. That your rights were only guaranteed as long as they were connected to the creator. So philosophically, the West has severed that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. True belief in God is the minority view now. Back then, it was the majority view. Now it's the minority. So your rights will be taken away. Almost it, that has to happen, given that philosophical presupposition that you weren't ever given rights by a creator. You actually came from pond scum. So we get the, our rights from the government. <laughs> yeah, you, you get your rights from them and they'll decide what you can do and can't do. And they're going to limit that. So yeah. it, it, it all goes back to that belief in the creator. So, boy, I don't want to leave us on a, a down note like that. <laughs> well, it's not down. I mean, it's really interesting how you hear people say we didn't have a Christian founding. But when you really look at these guys, it was extremely remarkably, important. Yeah, remarkably Christian and remarkably important. Yeah. So. Okay, Hampton. Okay. Enjoyed it. I will talk to you next time. Can't wait. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm -hmm.